Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder. A brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out, why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helen. I'm Stephen. And you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. This week... Yes, it's Brexit again, kids. We talk about the EU withdrawal bill. You ask us, what makes a good minister? And finally, should the Lib Dems just pack up and go home? So, Stephen, let's talk about Brexit. Yeah. Tell me, what's happening with the old EU withdrawal bill this week? I mean, this will be official by the time this arrives in listeners' ears. ears. Brains. Um, the government is delaying the in the beginning of the committee stage of the EU withdrawal bill. Wow. Effectively, because it has so many amendments on it. So it's a bit like an old Christmas tree, and basically it's just had a lot of baubles hung on it, and at any point it might kind of just... Critical mass has been achieved, and it's now just unwieldy and impossible. Yeah, essentially. And the other hilarious difficulty is that the government is going to have to, at some point, get this through the Lords, where it has no majority, can't control the timetable, and at every defeat, it pings back to the Commons. It can't use the Parliament Act because the EU withdrawal bill needs to have... Well, I mean, this is actually the slightly... I think slight missing fact from the EU withdrawal bill debate, right? Isn't the EU withdrawal bill means, you know, does not really facilitate, you know, we are leaving regardless. What it facilitates is the ending of EU law being automatically incorporated into British law. Seeing as that will happen anyway during the period of transition, actually, the bill doesn't need to necessarily pass right away. The slight weirdness about the fact the government has got into a pickle over the EU withdrawal bill is one, it validates the argument for having an early election. Their majority was not big enough before, and it's certainly not big enough now. Of course, the problem was that she should have won that early election. However, what has basically happened is two people did something exceptionally stupid on the 9th of June. The first person to do something exceptionally stupid was Yvette Cooper, who wrote a piece in The Guardian saying that what was needed was a cross-party commission on Brexit. 
The second person to do something incredibly stupid was Theresa May, who didn't go, oh, wait, have you decided you'd also like to take responsibility for this mess? Great idea. Yeah, because hello, you... this big lake of blood. Would you like to dip your hands in it at all? Yeah, but it, so if you want a soft Brexit, it is, it is a sensible strategy. If you are someone who wants action on the free movement of Labour, which just compels a, a fairly drastic breach... It is just such a strange... But the weird thing is, is that from the Conservative perspective, they really should have bitten that off with both hands and just gone, oh, yeah, we'll have a kind of grand... You know, that we'll have a Conservative government for everything else, but we'll effectively have a grand coalition to negotiate this once-in-a-lifetime thing. It's a fascinating question about whether or not they would have got that past their own... Because there is such a, like, hair trigger among the kind of Brexit elite of of the betrayal narrative and whether or not they they actually, although, they, again, they should have been very much in favour of this because it would have helped them achieve their goals, would have seen this as being a, a conspiracy to derail it and, you know, Labour are going to hold this up and blah, 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 and we're going to mire it. And actually what we should just do is ram it through the commons with our massive muscles. Again, another reason to have an early election that you win. But um, I think it's got to an interesting stage now in the debate where it's, uh, you know, there has been a little bit of movement in the polls, but I just, I, I'm really intrigued to know if, if anything will actually make anybody change their mind. Because to me, it just seems it's it's not really an argument about Brexit anymore. It's become a, com- a cultural argument, something much, much deeper. But you wrote in your column this week about this idea about the fact that the really sad thing about this is that there is a Brexit out there that would satisfy almost everybody, right? Yeah, so the argument I make in the column this week, and it's an argument that's been advanced to me by several people in the European Commission and several people who know the EU's internal processes well in domestic politics, right? Then if you are the EU, the central thing that you can't have is a situation in which people start approaching EU membership like a buffet. But equally, if you're the EU, you know that Brexit is bad for everyone. It's particularly bad for the United Kingdom, and it's also bad for the economic prosperity of the rest of the EU. And it's in your interests to have as close a trade relationship as possible. But the UK has to, if not lose out from the process, at least has to pay a price that it's not easy for, say, Hungary to also pay. And so the argument sort of several people made is what are the things that the EU would have liked from Britain before Brexit? One, for the City of London to come under the control of the European Central Bank, because there's this slight weirdness that the European Union's and the Eurozone's major financial services hub is not within the Eurozone, but in several important ways it kind of is. So one, you kind of go, yes, we will cede control over that. Two, you become a rule taker not a rule maker, you just follow all regulation that comes out of the EU. Three, you pay more in as a net contribution than you do now. And then this effectively allows you a situation where you have the same level of market access, but you don't have the free movement of people. Because although that is economically not great for Britain not to have the free movement of people, it isn't great for other countries not to have access to the British labour market, It is, however, less of an economic blow than the only available alternative. Now, it may be that these people on the EU side and the British side are being too optimistic. However, seeing as the government is at the moment putting a lot of time and effort into a magical customs union which doesn't force you to have a hard border at Northern Ireland, it is a bit... I mean, the slightly slightly sad thing about Brexit, right, is it's in the Labour Party's interest for Brexit to go really badly, just in a short-term way. I mean, I think in its long-term interest, it is very much not in their interest for it to go really badly. But in the short term, it's in their interest. The weird and slightly tragic thing is, is actually it's not in the Conservative Party's interests to have a Brexit about its weird personal obsessions. That's incredibly dangerous to the Conservative Party in both the medium and long term. And yet, and it's also incredibly bad for everyone who 
has to live here. Well, just to um, pick up something else that's happened this week, I was really impressed to see a bit of effective opposition politics from Jeremy Corbyn, who went in very hard last week at Prime Minister's Questions on the Universal Credit phone line charging 55p a minute, and actually it just became indefensible. Like He did the thing that we've always talked about, instead of these sort of vague kind of, Theresa May, are you against bad things? Are you for good things? He picked a specific thing that they could hammer away at, and this week, David Gork, who's the Work and Pension Secretary, had to go up in front of the committee, the select committee involved, and try and defend it, and therefore decided basically that he couldn't. So there was a, a concession ahead of Prime Minister's questions. Now, this is something, obviously, the you know, we've got much deeper problems with universal credit than this, and some of the stories that are coming out are really, truly, really grim. But there is no doubt that this is something that would have made people's lives a lot worse that has now, because of effective opposition, been dropped. So um, I just wanted to give a big shout out to the big JC. I know, I, you know, I've been tough on him on the past but I think this one Labour played really really well and it does speak to me as well about that they're getting better at finding the pressure points on stuff that they care about right and and obviously you don't see that with Brexit because as you say it's more in their interest just to say you know fill your boots lads let's see how you how you do on this one Stephen I've got a question for you there seems to be a bit of a thing now where uh, a certain type of, maybe you could call them a centrist dad if we weren't banned from using such outrageous insults on this podcast. You know, a certain type of centrist commentator becomes very alarmed about the fact that Labour and the Tories have such similar Brexit positions in terms of leaving the single market, that kind of thing, and, and tries to make a, a new centrist party happen. Um, for whatever value of centrist. I know I've written about how it's often a very um, woolly word. Um, but there is the Lib Dems. And why does everyone hate the Lib Dems? And can they ever make them stop hating the Lib Dems, is my question. I mean, as like the kind of weird lone defender of of the... I feel like there's this kind of weird... Well, tell us what you're the lone defender of. The weird lone defender of the word centrist. I mean, I mean, it's so... like the word neoliberal, isn't it? I mean, this was the whole point when I wrote about it, is there is a specific set of policies or ideology you could call neoliberal, and then it just drifted into being something vaguely capitalist that I don't like. And my problem with the word centrist was always the way it was used by a certain kind of Labour lefty to mean everybody wasn't either actually goose-stepping or them. Yeah. Uh, so I think there are, there are two objections I have to the way it is sometimes used now. One is it gets conflated, including by actual centrists, with the electorally lucrative common ground, ground or yeah. whatever you want to call it, right? But, like, self-evidently, like, there is a middle ground between John McDonald's fiscal rule and Philip Hammond's fiscal rule. I mean, actually, in that case, Philip Hammond's fiscal rule is, is, is silly, right? There's Actually, McDonald's fiscal rule makes a great deal of sense. But there is quite a lot of space between those two fiscal rules. Self-evidently, there is a one of them is more left-wing, one of them is more right-wing. I can't really see what the electoral space is for a position between the two of them, but nonetheless, there is obviously a centrist position. But yeah, it is slightly fascinating that there is this new uh, Radicals party. There was a party profiled in the FT called Renew. Joe Morn had his party spring the party. <laughs> um, there's another one. I, and the slightly hilarious thing about it, right, is if, if you are looking at the big two political parties and you're going, oh, what I would like is someone a bit more compassionate than the Conservatives, a bit more into the market than Labour. So, I mean, guess, guys, it's called the SNP. Or, failing that, the, the Lib Dems, right? And seeing as what the, that's what these people sort of say they want, right, is that, and plus they're both more pro-European. 
Yeah, I just think the fascinating thing about the Lib Dems is I, I think maybe they did more damage to themselves or were damaged more in the last election than perhaps we even realised by Tim Farron's socially conservative views because there was a great talk by John Curtis talking about the Labour Conservative split and saying actually the economic argument is no longer the one that really, well, this election didn't really animate voters or it was not the choice that they made in terms of left-wing, right-wing. Actually, it was a a values election and about social liberalism. And I think that's the thing that really nerfed them is I don't think there's a space for the Lib Dems if they're not socially liberal, right? That's just not the pool of people that they're fishing in. There are no socially conservative centrists. Like the kind of person who cares about being in the single market is also fine with gay marriage, right? That's just a thing. Yeah, the overlap between I like the single market I like equal marriage. It's entirely... It's just a circle. It's just a circle. So I think there are a couple of problems. So I am doing my kind of big piece about what What the 2017... um, No, that that will come at the end of the year. Uh, My big piece about what the electoral battleground looks like after the 2017 election. Obviously, I did that after the 2015 election. A bunch of people who agreed that the Labour defeat was so bad in 2015 that the best result they could get was what they got this time have now decided because they don't like Corbyn that actually the 2015 election wasn't that bad. So the main reason why I'm doing it is so whatever the result in 2022 is, I can't game it against... uh, against, I can't go, oh, actually, if, if... I mean... Because like, Labour really ought to win the next election when you just look at the well, look at the fundamental. Seats, well, right? also, I just... Do you know, I had this terrible thought this morning and I may have just, you know, rendered us all completely redundant. I just thought, is it maybe just the case that you just need a certain amount of time to pass so that everything that's gone wrong in the economy or the country, everything that people don't like, they just blame the current government for it and then it just takes a while to get through the circle and then they just blame the new government for it and then it just repeats forever. I think the difficulty with that theory, though, is it doesn't quite explain 1992. Ah, interesting. Or indeed, fifty-nine. Right, so there, there are there are lots of elections. But you know what I mean. I just thought of... I watched um, Jeremy Corbyn, or rather, I read about Jeremy Corbyn at PMQs. You know, landing the economy blows, landing the DUP. You know, I think it just, uh, yeah, I suppose it doesn't really explain the eighties either. You know, at some point, there's just an accumulation of enough crap that you can throw at the government that it becomes very hard. Yeah, I think there are. Shake it off. But the interesting thing in terms of what has gone wrong for the Lib Dem, so I was looking at the map, and the Lib Dem election result is so much worse than it looks at first. There are only 48 seats in which they are second. Of those 48, there are only seven in which they are within 5,000 votes Ouch. of the mm. incumbent party. Their money situation, I presume, is not brilliant. Although people are joining and they are the third party again by vote, so, you know, there are there are sort of, yeah. you know, th- things are looking up in a way for them. I mean, my instinct, and this is probably unfair because I always feel that whenever I have an uncharitable reading of, of why someone does something, it turns out it's wrong, and I'm innately sceptical of bad faith arguments, but I kind of feel that, the let's up a new party is kind of for people who look at the fact and right so if you're really concerned about the direction of the government's eu policy actually the most viable way of fixing it is to join the conservative party right there are only a hundred thousand of them right there's a good chance that theresa may is going to collapse at any given moment right you wouldn't need that many remainers to suddenly mean that the next Tory leader could go, I hear the EEA is lovely this time of year, right? If that's the change you really want to bring about, right? <laughs> I really like the idea we might do great movie quotes yeah. but replace with EEA. Like, I love the smell of the EEA in the morning. If, if that is what you want to do, that is significantly more effective than hoping that spring the party, the radicals, renew the Cabbage Patch Kids or whatever one of the next silly one of these parties to emerge is going to catch up. And ditto, although the Lib Dems have got a really awful electoral map, that is... Pr- Probably like trying to recover from that is a better bet than you know the negative effects of first past the post. But I kind of feel that setting up a, a new centrist party is a really good way of feeling better about 
it's 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 kind of the sort of it's the token equivalent going well i tried I've put something forward. In a weird way, I wonder if it isn't also a version of the thing that Corbynism has already been attacked for, which is purity politics, which is I don't want to share my tent with anybody who I don't, you know, I don't have all the same beliefs as, right? And I think that's an interesting point as well, is just actually, are you happy to work within the existing structures or do you want a party that's just for you and people like you? If you were going to have a centrist party that you were going to found, what would you call it? I mean, in terms of what would be a cool name or yeah. just in terms of its electoral... Po- I mean, I think if you're going to do a new centrist party, just call it Stop Brexit, right? Because the bet, right, that these parties are making electorally, and indeed that the Lib Dems under Tim Farron kind of made and are still making, is that it will go sufficiently badly that at the next election, whenever it is, a non-trivial number of people, and OK, admittedly in this election, that non-trivial number of people, even though they didn't vote Labour, they tended to help Labour, Kensington... And Battersea are both quite good examples of places where the Labour vote does go up, but the big story is that the Tory vote dissolves to various sort of Brexit-blocking entities. The bet you're making if your new centre party is going to be successful, right, is that Brexit will be bad, the two parties will be seen as being hand-in-glove, and that... At that point, you know, step forward everyone's favourite windmill-based lawyer to sweep all before him, right? That So you you might as well just, if seeing as you are, that is the bet you're making. You might as well just, like, go with that. So, yeah, just call it Stop Brexit. Right, and now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us! It's actually a, a really good question this week. They're all good questions, Steve, and we love all of our listeners equally. But this one... This one I love a little bit more. It's from Nick Humphrey, and it's two things. One, who we think the rising stars of each party are. But I think, actually, the bit of the question I really like is if you might also explain a bit about how you go about working out who is actually any good. And the point that he makes is a very good piece that Isabel Hardman wrote a while back about actually uh, when Jeremy Brown was sacked and a bunch of people in the lobby went, oh, this is awful, this is awful. Who's the Lib Dem Foreign Office Minister at uh, the time? Who was the Home Office at the time. And everyone in the Home Office was just like, he was crap. And also, I mean, he was the Lib Dem Home Office Minister. And seeing as the Lib Dem Junior Coalition Ministers had basically two jobs, right? They were told to do one of and ideally two things right firstly have your own project so we can go look in coalition we did we you know made it easier for people to adopt and then secondly just don't let anything crazy happen jeremy brown had no project in the home office but he was the home office minister during the time of the go home bans and that was literally his brief as well and the fascinating thing is i always get my um my nicks uh mixed up so, or is it my Foster's mixed Don, my Don's mixed up, right? Yeah. Either Don Baker or Don Foster no, or Norman, Norman Baker. Norman Baker. <laughs> the one who thinks that Richard Kelly was, was murdered David by Kelly the... was murdered. Right. He thinks. I'm just saying, I'm not. That's not yeah. what I'm saying. Norman Baker. Norman Baker. Right. Now, so yes, Norman Baker. Thinks, MP for Lewis, as was. Thinks a lot of outlandish things and also has a single, a record that you can listen to on Spotify. But... The reason why Theresa May vanished from leadership contention in terms of the topic of regular discussion in mid-2014 is until 2014 she had Jeremy Brown going around lunching a bunch of journalists and talking about the future of liberalism. And then from 2014 to 2015 she had 
Foster slash Baker. I don't understand why I can't. You know, it's just one of those weird names where literally it just slides from my I brain. I had the Norman like... Foster, Norman Fowler, one of them being an appear, one of them being an architect horror too. Um, right? But yeah, you're right. I think of that as the Michael Gove gambit, which is that you heard lots of stuff about Michael Gove, mostly because departments that Michael Gove is in tend to leak. Who knows how that could happen? Who can say what strange process it might be? So, I mean, it was in journalists' interests to be flattering about him and his projects because he was a really brilliant source. Yes, I think... I mean, bless him, now that he's in agriculture, it turns out even the great, great leaky gossip of Michael Gove is not enough to get people interested in... It's actually in quite a shame because it actually is doing quite a good job at DEFRA. Yeah, well, I, um, yeah, but you know what I mean? It's, it's, it turns out there is a limit to what you can get lobby journalists' interest and, you know, neonicotinoid pesticides are it. So the tragedy is that the way that people decide who rising stars are tend to be based on someone who gave good quotes at a lunch, someone who has a similar sense of humour, someone who I have the same non-political interests as. And the big unmentioned one, the same, the person that everybody agrees. I mean, that's the thing, is that there is a phenomenal herding instinct about political journalism, right? It's to even more than, you know, theatre or film reviewing, being an outlier and being the one person who says, I think X is crap that everyone else loves, or I think X is... like you, yeah, well, well, This as, is as like you and Diane, to, isn't it? This is and Diane Abbott, right? It's the fact that saying that Diane Abbott is an effective politician is still the kind of thing that gets you kind of... <laughs> as reluctant as I am to say this when I'm quite literally within throttling distance of my boss, but, you know, when I'm not in the office, right, with the rest of the lobby, and you're like, oh, what's the line on this, right? If I go, oh, I think the line on the EU withdrawal bill collapsing is X, right? And it turns out everyone else thinks it's why I looked off, right? But if I turn to, like, you know, Ash at the Independent, I go, what do you think the line on this is, right? Well, we... Yeah, the we, we can't numbers. be proved wrong because it's the same all way of the all... lefty press has, has taken the same line on it. Newspapers um, get obsessed about whether or not when they look at the first editions come in about whether or not they've, there are stories that other people have missed, which is something that always used to baffle me. It was the idea that, you know, just because it's a good story for another newspaper doesn't necessarily mean it's a good story for your market. So actually, you know, why don't you have the kind of confidence to say, I've, I looked at all these stories and I made the best selection for our readers and that the fact that it's on the front page of The Guardian doesn't really change that. But you're right, it is always a... And particularly from a left-wing perspective, I think that is something that always sort of skews it slightly because it's harder to make a case for a, a left-wing person being good, right? Just simply because there's a sort of reflexive kind of yeah, about them that you have to go against the pack to say that. Yeah, so I'm trying to kind of develop a theory of how it is I assess whether or not politicians are any good, right? And the slightly weird thing is that the skill set of being a good minister and a good opposition politician and good in the House of Commons and a good leader... There are some overlaps, but they are actually all sufficiently different than it's it's quite easy to assess, I think, whether or not someone is a good opposition politician, right? You know, are they good at finding stress points in the government? Do they like run their constituency office well? Yeah. You know, the kind of the metrics are quite easy to grade. Yeah, do they have their CLP on side? You know, is their contact rate good with constituents? Mm. I think all that stuff's really important. I mean, like I go back a lot to the Harriet Harman book where she was you know, she did lots of work on NHS waiting times and basically said anybody below this line is going to die before they get their operation and just being able to find simple ways of framing issues like that to attack the government on is really important um, but ministers are different because I mean there's a great Radio 4 series interviewing people who now sort of left public life about what makes a good minister and, and there is a, a thing as well Michael Gove used to call Liz Truss his hand grenade right and that's one model of it you've, you've got to just kind of go in and bulldoze your thing that you want doing and actually Michael Gove and certainly Dominic Cummings as his bad took that to an extreme degree where they basically just sold the civil service as you know who were going to block their genius and that's very much not how the civil service saw it but you do need a certain kind of 
I'm here to do this job and this is who I am. I'm a single purpose, you know, I've just got to hammer it through. I mean, but this is where the kind of question of, and this is why I think it's it's much more difficult to assess people on the government side, partly because you have to start grading weirdly on this kind of incredibly sort of dependent curve. So let's take the Blair Brown era, right? Where in an odd way, being a minister with projects was not that great a way to survive because to have a project was at some point to make a choice between... Blair Tony and, Brown. and Gordon, yeah, which and was also, to end yeah. yourself, right? Which m- means, in an odd way, one of the reasons why that generation of leadership candidates who'd come up through the cabinet in 2015 were so bad is that being a they good were the survivors, was, was, yeah, of an era in which the tall poppies were ruthlessly sliced off. Yeah. I also think there's a thing where you get with league tables of surgeons and stuff like that, for example, where one of the problems you have is if you're like a, a really specialist, like a paediatric heart surgeon or something like that, actually having a high death rate is not necessarily a sign that you're just sewing scissors into people all the time. It might well also be a sign that you are given more difficult things to do. You take on edge cases. It's a really big problem in America, obviously, because you, you know if you want to be a cosmetic surgeon or a brain surgeon, would you take on the highly experimental cases or do you want to take on you know or, or do you want to go into a much more lucrative area like a cosmetic right. surgery where you can bang through 15 nose jobs a day or whatever and then to have our kind of third but that's the same thing of, with ministers yeah, right yeah. is that you kind of uh, you know if you're michael fallon and you're minister for the today program or david gork and that weird phrase they keep going on cork the gork which makes me feel always like i slightly want to hit myself in the face you're sent out to do the tough things yeah and your your departmental job is effectively an excuse to have someone who when the BBC goes who are you getting to defend this and they're like David Gork they kind of can't go well we don't want him because they have to accept him and David Caroline Gork Flint is, was, a, was a very yeah. in the previous well, era was what Barry Gardner gives the, yeah. the leadership now it's a kind of uh, solid defence yeah David Gork I think is a really good example of the difficulty of assessing someone right because now obviously universal credit is a disaster right However, it was... It's, it's not it's David Gork's disaster. It's not disaster. David Gork's disaster. It's a disaster than, than, you know, we as a magazine, The Guardian, the various people, BuzzFeed, have been shouting about for a long time. It obviously reflects very badly as Ian Duncan Smith's job as a, a Secretary of State. David Gork has been sent there effectively to diffuse the row. Now, I, I actually think, in some ways, I've suddenly realised David Gork is a bad example of this. I think David Gork has then been quite a bad minister on that metric, because he has not diffused the not diffused Well, the David Liddington's maybe a better the, example. Yeah, than David Liddington's in, injustice. Because actually, prisons are in a terrible, creaky old state, and you get a new report almost every week about some jail that's horrible and it's got yeah. overcrowded cells and stuff like that. And yet, somehow, it's that's not ever. Yeah, you know, at some point, I think it hopefully it will break through. But and then you know. the other difficulty with ministers is, I mean, so for example, David Liddington, you know, what's his face, Chris Grayling, terrible minister. Just, I mean, just objectively appalling minister. That thing is actually, I feel it's it's easier to tell if someone's good on the opposition side unless it's easy to tell if they're bad. And on the ministerial side, it's quite easy to just like, yeah, they're rubbish. But it's quite hard to tell if they are good or circumstantially good, yada, yada, yada. Or they're just lucky to have a really great department um, that's all happy, a great permanent secretary. The other metric I've started using is staff retention. Because if you can't retain and keep your staff, you probably can't run a successful department I mean, there were many reasons why Theresa May, as the election collapsed as it did. But one of them is that she had a climate of fear, which is why so many civil servants were unhappy and why it used to leak so badly. And it meant that people couldn't say things like, yeah, please stop glaring at people on TV. But that's fascinating because that's the difference between prime minister and cabinet minister, right? Is that her civil servants at the Home Office liked her a lot more. 
But that's just because of the home. I mean, this is this is the bit where you can tell I spend too long hanging out with people who work at the Treasury and the Foreign Office. Because I was about to go, that's just because they're all thick racists, and I suddenly was just like, wow, I've imbibed the Treasury propaganda. But the kind of less glib way of putting it is that there is a, a very Home Office view of the world mm. that attracts its senior civil servants, which she completely shared. So her inflexibility wasn't a problem. She was a square peg in a square hole. But they also liked how hard she worked. And you yeah. might say that's because the Home Office, as you say, are a bit Hufflepuff, let's be honest with you. I mean, isn't it Slytherin who are the racists? But but I just feel they're the sort of hard-working duffers. Yeah, it's true. They are honest duffers. And I'm sure that and, you know, some of my best friends work at the Home Office. She does... But I'm not so not several people from the Home Office subscribe to yeah. the morning email. Hashtag not everybody at the Home Office. Yeah, not is a, all Home Office. <laughs> it's a duffer um, slash racist. Um, but you, I'm sure you have several colleagues that you, you know, you you know that's true. But yeah, I think that's why she did so well there. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Why not check out our sister podcast? There is the back half from the culture team, seriously from Caroline and Anna, and also Skylines from City Metric. You can find them all on iTunes or your podcast provider of choice. Mm-hmm.